My guess is that you have never heard of the Fort Worth, Texas-based corporation called Prestige Ameritech. But I'm reasonably certain that you are very familiar with that which they manufacture. Prestige Ameritech is the United States' largest domestic manufacturer of surgical masks. During a, a typical year, Prestige produces about 250,000 masks a day. But 2020 is not your typical year. Currently, they are producing four times that number of masks each and every day, an amazing million masks. And that's only the half of it. Every single day, not every week, not every month, but every single day, they are turning away orders for an average of 100 million masks a day. That's a mind-blowing $50,000 worth of sales each and every day that they turn away. And where are all those masks going that they produce? Well, they're going to hospitals. But if you're going to buy a, a, a prestige Ameritech mask, you better be a hospital that's willing to give them a five-year contract of purchasing masks. So what's up with that? Well, a, a similar run of, of masks back in 2009 during the H1N1 swine flu outbreak uh, caused uh, prestige to invest millions of dollars in additional machinery and hire uh, extra workers and things like that in order to meet the demands. But when the outbreak subsided, the hospitals showed their gratitude by quickly changing their orders over to low-cost Chinese manufacturers, leaving prestige with too many employees and too much capacity. You know, there's an old adage that says, no good deed goes unpunished. And tragically, at times, that is true. Now, you didn't turn in today for a lecture on manufacturing capacity or economics, so uh, let's get where we're going here today. It seems like masks are everywhere. We wear them to the grocery store. We wear them to, to get takeout. Uh, we wear them to go to the bank. Uh, I even had to wear them when I was sleeping in the hospital a few weeks ago. It wasn't quite as bad as being suffocated by a pillow, but it was close. Now, we have all these masked people around us. It seems so incredibly surreal and unnatural, but in reality, most of us, many of us, I should say, have been wearing masks for a very, very, very long time. The only difference is that we didn't realize that we've been wearing them because our masks just happen to be perfectly formed to the shape of our faces. Many of us don't want others to, to know who we really are, to, to see the hurts and the disappointments and the failures and the brokenness. So we hide behind a mask in order to deceive others, but in the process, we're, we're ultimately deceiving ourselves. And with everything that's going on now, it seems as if people are wearing uh, two sets of masks. We've got the figurative mask that we've always been wearing to, to keep others from seeing who we really are, basically trying to keep others from hurting us. 
And then there's the literal prestige Ameritech kind of mask that we use to try to keep others from getting hurt by us. But if you really think about it, there, there's something else that's actually going on here. You see, while the COVID-19 pandemic has forced us to wear physical masks, it has done something else. You see, the stress and the anxiety that this disease has inflicted upon society has forced many of us to shed our figurative masks and let everybody see who we really are. In the midst of the uncertainty and the fear, we simply can't hide our true selves. And sadly, in many cases, that which is being revealed is not very pretty. It turns out that we're not nearly as put together as our Facebook and Instagram and Twitter feeds, uh, those posts would make it seem. Many of us are, are scared and angry and confused and frustrated and anxious and I know that because that's the case with me. This whole pandemic thing has caused me to confront many of those things in my own life. But if there is one thing more than anything else that has been unmasked in my life, it's my struggle to maintain a, a constant state of joy in the midst of very unpleasant circumstances. You see, to, to be perfectly honest, joy has been somewhat elusive in my life for quite some time. Now, don't get me wrong, I've known happiness, that pleasant feeling that occurs when, when things go our way. When, when we finally uh, purchase that uh, electronic device that we had been waiting so long to purchase, or when our, our sports team is doing well, of course our sports teams actually have to play in order to be doing well. Uh, when, when we get to go on that, that long vacation, uh, when we catch all of the green lights on, on Allentown Boulevard or the Carlisle Pike, when we receive a, a raise at work or, or perhaps we land that job that we had been waiting for, or maybe we actually get called back to work after being laid off for a period of time. Or when we cast aside all common sense and impulsively buy that COVID-19 pandemic puppy. That, my friends, is happiness. And it comes and goes based on our present circumstances. Yet the moment that we get laid off again, the moment that our favorite team, once they get back to playing, actually stumbles and, and hits a losing streak, the moment a, a newer version of that phone that we had, had loved for so long actually comes out, the moment that, that COVID the puppy decides to eat the couch, there goes our happiness. But joy, joy is something entirely different. You see, joy is, is an orientation of the heart. It, it's a state of mind. It is a profound, confident assurance of God's goodness that finds itself in God's spirit living inside of us. It is deep 
and it's permanent. It doesn't ebb and flow with life circumstances, and it's not something that, that you or I can actually conjure up. No, it's, something, uh, it's not something that we can actually even learn. Rather, it's something that we experience as we draw closer and closer to Jesus. You see, unlike happiness, joy is completely independent of our present circumstances. It doesn't focus on our temporal circumstances, but rather it focuses on the character of God. And as you can imagine, being someone who is struggling in their own personal life to actually experience joy, it has been quite a challenge to pull together this morning's message. It's kind of like divine irony from God. This week, I tried all of my normal sermon prep strategies. I read commentaries to see what, what, what I could learn. I researched approaches that had been taken by other pastors when they dealt with the topic of joy. I studied articles about biblical joy. I even looked up all of the occurrences in the Gospels of the words joy and rejoice, and, and I carefully examined every single passage to see what I could learn. But you know what? Nothing came together. So I decided to focus on a brief passage in the Gospel of John. It's a passage that shows that, that joy is found in the midst of the greatest sorrow that has ever occurred on the face of earth. And if joy can be found in the greatest sorrow that has ever occurred on the face of this planet, surely it can be found in the daily challenges that I face and that you face. So let's get started. We're going to read actually two passages of, of Scripture this morning. We're going to read them back to back. So uh, the first thing I'd ask you to do, uh, open up your Bibles, and we're going to go to John 16, 16 to 24. I'm going to give you a moment to find that. John chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. Now, once you find that passage, you need to, to put something in your Bible, some kind of bookmark, uh, the, the little fabric thing that's uh, tied to your Bible. You could throw a pen in there. You maybe put your finger in there. Uh, you can dog ear a page if you want to do that. I don't know why they didn't call it cat ear, but anyhow, that's a different story. Uh, but anyhow, uh, just find that place. And then I want you to move a little further in the New Testament to, to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I'll give you just a second uh, to do that. And uh, once you have uh, both of those, if you would please stand in honor of God's word, if you are able, and allow me uh, to read them to you. We'll start with Galatians 5, since that's what you're open to right now. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And then if you would flip over to John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. These are the words of Jesus. A little while... 
and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered her baby, or the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Ben and Mike Bongo and I gathered together in uh, my office to, to choose uh, uh, a particular series uh, that we could come up with that would have the intent of helping each of us live Christ-like lives in the midst of this crisis that we're facing. And uh, we based the series on the fruits of the Spirit uh, that we just read in Galatians chapter 5. Now, these nine character uh, qualities are not some kind of moral code that you and I are to follow in order to somehow please God, but, but rather they are a list of behaviors that, that flows naturally out of those who, who have repented of their sins, received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and subsequently had received the Holy Spirit uh, into their lives, and they're being led by God's Spirit. In other words, you and I can't conjure up the ability to do any of these. And if these attributes are going to, to flow from our lives, they will be a result of you and I intentionally pursuing a relationship with Jesus with all of our heart, soul, and mind. You see, when we pursue Jesus, it is his spirit and his spirit alone that empowers love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control to supernaturally flood out from our lives. Now, last week, Pastor Ben talked about the first fruit, love. And love is what ties everything together. All of the eight remaining fruits, they flow from the fruit of love. And without love for God and without love for others, none of the rest will, will ever be demonstrated in our lives. And immediately following love in the list is joy. 
Now, the, the noun joy, or the verb form of joy, rejoice, it occurs 48 times within the Gospels. And they are used in all kinds of different circumstances. From, from the earth-shattering announcement of Jesus' birth, to the terrifying words that Jesus utters in the Sermon on the Mount when, when he warns his disciples, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But joy and rejoice, they occur in other places in the gospel. It goes to the excitement of, of Zacchaeus, the, the thieving tax collector who is desperate for acceptance and forgiveness. And, and, and he gets to experience joy when Jesus uh, commands him to climb down from the sycamore tree so that the two of them could dine together in Jesus' house. And then there's the glee that, that the 72 followers of Jesus experienced when they were successfully used by Christ to heal the sick and proclaim the good news to the downtrodden. And then there's the joy that came and the overwhelming confusion surrounding the discovery of Jesus' empty tomb. In all of these events, events overflowing with happiness and pleasure, disappointment and sorrow, uncertainty and fear, joy shines so amazingly brightly. If only we look past our circumstances and allow ourselves to actually experience it. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in John chapter 16. Jesus is mere hours from, from being arrested, tried, convicted, and executed. He's in the upper room. He has just shared a, a final meal with, with his disciples, his, his dear friend, turned betrayer. Uh, Judas has left the upper room on his way to, to find the Jewish religious leaders so, so that he can ultimately lead them to Jesus so that they can arrest him. It, it is an extremely uh, intense time. And Jesus' disciples still don't fully understand what is about to happen to Jesus or for that matter, what's actually about to happen to him or to them, I should say. And in the midst of this confusion... Jesus says to them in chapter uh, 16 of John, verse 16, he says this, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. They, they, they are entirely confused. Jesus is going to go away, seemingly for a long time. That's the idea when you get, when someone says, you will see me no longer. And then he's going to come back, and it's all going to happen in a little while. So they say to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. 
and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Now these guys are not stupid. They're just confused. They know exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm going to the Father. They know that it means death. They know that Jesus is going to die. After all, this isn't the first time that they've heard this message from Jesus of his impending death. And they also know that people just don't go to the Father, that they just don't die and then return because these guys haven't had any experience with, with anyone being resurrected save Lazarus. So they get the death part. What they don't get is the a little while part. Now, you and I, we, we have the benefit of knowing the rest of the story. We know exactly what's happening here. We know that, that Jesus' death isn't a year away. It's not a month away. It's not a week away. It's not a day away. It is hours away. And in a matter of hours, Jesus' disciples, they are going to be left alone in this world. And they are going to be terrified because they believe what ultimately happens to Jesus might happen to them. Now, of course, Jesus, being God, knows exactly what they're thinking. And this is what he says. Is this what you are asking yourselves? What is meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And this brings us to to the first thing that, that we learn about joy this morning, and it's this. The opposite of joy is not sadness. It's hopelessness. Jesus is telling his disciples, in in a little while you will weep and lament, and and while you are suffering in overwhelming grief, the entire world is going to be celebrating that this has happened. Now the Greek word, klio, has been translated weep. And it is an intense word that becomes even more intense when it is coupled with with threno, which is is the Greek word that's translated wailing. You see, uh, klio, it's not crying. It's not sadness. It is intense wailing. It's desperation. More than anything else, it's hopelessness. And it's the word that Matthew uses to describe Peter hearing the rooster cry after his unconscionable denier of Christ. And it's the word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses to to describe the the utter anguish of Hannah, a godly woman who who so desperately wanted a child, a woman who, who makes an annual pilgrimage to the temple to beg God for a child 
only to be cruelly ridiculed by the other woman in the temple because she couldn't conceive. Brothers and sisters, Clio is not tears of sadness, but rather the heart-wrenching agony of hopelessness. And many of you get this. There are women and men watching or listening right now who are desperate to conceive a child. And they have experienced years of barrenness. They don't grieve because they're sad. They grieve because they're hopeless. There are other couples who have conceived time and time again only to lose their child to miscarriage time and time again. They don't grieve because they're sad. They grieve because they're hopeless. There are others, husbands and wives, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, parents and adult children whose relationships have been a train wreck for so incredibly long that they can't remember when things were good. And no matter how hard they try, they can't figure out how to make things better. They don't grieve because they're sad. They grieve because they're hopeless. And the list of those who grieve because of hopelessness goes on and on and on and on. And because they have no hope, they have no joy. But this wasn't some kind of hypothetical uh, argument that, that, that Jesus wanted his disciples to consider. Instead, in a matter of hours, this is all going to become the reality. Luke 23 gives us some insight on this. It says this, It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts and all his acquaintances. And the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Imagine the scene. Imagine what it must have been like for, for Jesus' mom and, and, and for all the women who followed Jesus and all the men who followed Jesus and Jesus' remaining disciples. They, they had been people who, who had followed him for three years. They had been transformed by his teaching. They were awed by his miracles. They, they looked to his leadership. They, they had placed all of their faith and trust in him only to have him executed on a cross in front of their very eyes while his enemies celebrated. On that cross, as far as Jesus' followers knew, hope had died, and with it, joy. 
But that wasn't the end of the story. Look again at John chapter 16, starting in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You see, the second thing that we learn about joy is this, that the source of joy is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the hopelessness that that the disciples would experience when Jesus was crucified is going to to be transformed or overcome by joy when Jesus is raised from the dead. And notice the illustration that Jesus uses here. He uses the illustration of childbirth to explain this. Now, I have uh, a little bit of experience regarding childbirth. Now, lest you be confused... As a result of this very strange world that we live in, I have not actually given birth to a child. But I have helped deliver two sons. And in both cases, my wife chose not to have an epidural to help her with the pain. Believe me, I remember the pain. It was killing me, and I wasn't even the one giving birth. I remember the sweat coming down from her face, the tears, the screams, the contractions, the pushing. And I'm going, Kath, you can do this. Remember those childbirth classes that we went to and and all those breathing exercises that we did? Just breathe like that. And she looks at me in disbelief and says, do you think you are being helpful right now? But in all seriousness, it's not even possible for me to even conceive of the pain that she experienced. But when Mike and John showed up on the scene and they were placed on her chest, all of the anguish that that, that Kathy had experienced was, was overcome with joy. Now, the pain wasn't completely gone. Kathy's body had been wrecked by childbirth. But the pain, it was completely overwhelmed by joy. And what Jesus is saying is that, that the pain and the sorrow and the loss that occurs in this world doesn't go away when we become Christians. You know, many people come to church and they begin to dabble around with Christianity and they think that God's going to take care of all of their problems. And they're good with Jesus as long as things are going well. But when things go off the rails and they are going to go off the rails, they quickly turn their back on Jesus. But when we truly embrace the gospel, when we realize we bring nothing to the table, that God owes us absolutely nothing, and that the very fact that, 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 that he has saved our scraggly, 
I don't know what word I want to use there. But the very fact that, that he has saved the mess of a human being like, like you and me should be completely enough. When, when we come to him in, in, in repentance and faith, his Holy Spirit comes inside of us. And the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it, it, the joy that comes with that, it overwhelms the pain and suffering and loss in our lives. This is exactly what happens on Easter morning. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of the guards, or for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. On that amazing day, the two Marys, they approached Jesus' tomb with the intent of anointing his dead body. And we know that from the parallel account of the resurrection in Mark. And it was a rushed burial on that late Friday afternoon of Jesus' crucifixion because the Jewish Sabbath was quickly approaching. And now it, it, it's Sunday morning, and with the Sabbath over, the women wanted to come and properly prepare Jesus' body. And on that glorious first Easter morning, they did not expect a risen Jesus. Instead, they expected to care for Jesus' bloodied and tortured body. Anointing Jesus' body would, would add more sorrow to the women's already unfathomable sorrow, but, but they knew that it was the right thing to do. Yet instead of a dead body, the, the, the women find what? They find an empty tomb and an angelic being who tells them exactly what Jesus told the eleven only three days prior. There you will see him again. You see, Jesus had gone away for a little while, and in a little while they would see him again, just as he promised. And what was their response? Verse 8, it was great fear mixed with great joy. You see, joy doesn't replace fear. It doesn't replace sadness. What it does is it completely overwhelms it. And what is the source of this overwhelming joy. It's the knowledge that Jesus is alive. But more than just being alive, it's Jesus being alive for you, it's Jesus being alive for me in such a way that we're actually going to get to see him again. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
And we what? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, that endurance produces character. In character, it produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For those of us who have repented of our sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we can find joy in the midst of our suffering because our suffering actually has a purpose. Suffering gives us endurance, which creates in us character, which gives us hope, which flows from God's love, which has been poured out been poured into us through the Holy Spirit. When we're weak, when we're afraid, when we're considering giving up, Jesus died for ungodly people, people who should have been left to suffer in hopelessness on their own. Yet because of his great love, we have salvation in spite of our sins. And when we focus on our salvation rather than our circumstances, that's where we find great joy. And for those of us who claim the name of Jesus, don't let the uncertainty, the fear, and the confusion of this crisis win. Remember your salvation. Remember that it has been sealed by the blood of Jesus. Remember that Psalm 30 reminds us that weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Remember that 2 Corinthians says this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, which are all around us, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they're eternal. And for those of you who, like me, who at times just wants it all to go away so that I can go back and live a normal life, let me remind you, and in the process, remind myself of a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, if we consider the unblushing promise, promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We, my friends, are far too easily pleased. 
Brothers and sisters, God is seeking to teach us something through this. And I'm not exactly certain what that is, but I would imagine that it might have something to do with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And I would imagine in the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead, things are going to get harder, not easier. And if we want to do more than just survive, but rather thrive in infinite joy, then we need not be too pleased by the trappings of this world, but rather we need to be overwhelmed by the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that are promised in the Gospels of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you now. And Lord, you know that we desperately desire to meet together as a church family. Lord, we desire uh, the fellowship of believers. And, and while we can, can do this thing online, Father, it, it, it's, it's a substitute but it's nothing like the real thing. And Lord God, I pray that you would give us strength to stay the course. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us wisdom as leaders to, to know when to bring people back together. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would not be, be, be looking to, to President Trump or the Congress or, or Governor Wolf or, or Secretary Levine, but Lord, we would be looking to you to be our guide. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be respectful to our government leaders. Yet, Heavenly Father, most of all, be obedient to you. I pray, Heavenly Father, for those in our church family who, uh, who like me, are struggling at times with joy. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to remember the joy of our salvation. Lord, that we might remember that, that our, our names have been written in the book of life, that we might remember that we are foreigners and aliens in this world, that, that there is a new kingdom and a, a new heaven and a new earth that, that is ultimately awaiting us. But God, while you tarry, I pray that we might be your hands and feet. That Lord God, that we might show the love of your son to, to a world that is suffering in the midst of a virus and they have absolutely no hope. God, work in a powerful and wonderful way. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.